1: The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing practices along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe, go to quince.com/milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 2015, Chef McKinney Howell took a sabbatical from her vegan food empire to cook for Stevie Wonder on tour. Today, we discuss her unique take on vegan cooking and what she learned during her year on the road.
2: Oh, I learned how to cook. I learned how to be a really good cook. I was a chef when I left here, and I was a little bit fancy. But after I left that tour, I could teach you how to be vegan for the rest of your life if that's what you wanted. Having all of the good things of life.
1: Also coming up, Adam Gopnik and I discuss food and literature, and we learn Croatia's secret to perfect cabbage rolls. But first, it's my interview with historian and writer Nadia Bernstein. Nadia, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Chris.
1: We're talking about one of my favorite topics, which uh, is the food industry in America, going back to the beginning of synthetic flavors in the 19th century. So let's get into the weird history. Um, sure. Sure. Castorium. I don't know if I pronounced that properly, Uh (laughs) but I read that. I always fell off my chair. So this comes from a beaver and beavers were hunted, I thought, because of beaver hats. But I guess for this, what is castorium and where does it come from and how is it used?
3: Okay. So let me tell you about how I found out about this ingredient. When I first started writing about and talking about the history of, of artificial flavors, I'd sometimes get this weird question from somebody in the audience somebody would raise their hand and say is fake vanilla actually beaver butt (laughs) and i was (laughs) and the first time i heard it i was a little bit taken aback i was like uh no um but i looked into it a bit and the thing that's being called beaver butt is an ingredient called castorium that isn't actually derived from the beaver anal gland, but from a gland next to the anal gland. So, you know, near butt, but not quite butt. <laughs> um and it's an a, important
1: a, distinction we might yes, want to point a out. Very
3: yes. important distinction. Yeah. And beavers use it to uh to mark their territory. And for other beaverish things, um, huh. but it has long been an important ingredient in perfumery, um, as other animal musks have been. And there's a lot of overlap between perfumery and flavors. So historically, it's a very expensive ingredient. You know, once I figured this out, this part of the perfume part of the story, I started answering the question of, is fake vanilla really beaver butt? With No, beaver butt is way too expensive to be used in fake vanilla. But then I started— But
1: was it used for a while for that?
3: Well, I started looking a little bit deeper into the history of vanilla flavors, especially before the Pure Food and Drug Act. And I saw that sometimes musk would be listed as an ingredient, not specifically beaver musk, just musk, a small amount— and then I started talking to flavorists, especially older flavorists, about this. And one flavorist told me uh, he had trained at one of the big flavor houses in the 1970s. Flavorists, by the way, are the craftspeople, really, who, who build the artificial flavors or the natural flavors, uh, the flavor additives in foods and beverages. He was a novice, and the flavorist who he was training under made him prepare castorium extract. As part of one of the routine tasks of learning how to do it, mm. so he got kind of this tray of um, beaver glandular sacs, and he had to turn them into an extract.
1: But this when is, it was this is used, what they do to the new guy, right? Yeah, On your totally. first day. He, he, here's here's some uh, beaver sacs. We want you to extract the the compound. Well,
3: his super, his uh, his the the master flavorist who was training him said, "I had you do that to see if you had the heart of a flavorist." So when it was used in flavors which was rarely it was used in really small quantities just kind of to add a certain nuance maybe to the very best vanilla flavorings they add um, a
1: certain je ne sais quoi yeah, yes i think also probably.
3: i think in ra- it was also used sometimes in raspberry flavorings hmm. um, but what i found was that in the 80s it's it almost stopped being used entirely. In fact, I couldn't find anybody who had any memory of ever using it who worked in the industry for the reason that in the 80s, a bunch of the big food and uh, beverage companies started striving to make their products kosher. And
1: that beaver um, butt is not and kosher. Beaver, beaver
3: butt is many things, but it is not kosher.
1: <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward to today's world where artificial is a real problem for a lot of food manufacturers. Mm-hmm. You mentioned... Um, that uh, trick cereal tried to switch to natural colors and ditched the high-fructose corn syrup, and that really didn't work out too well for them because they got really dull colors. So what is the industry doing now that they've created, you know, three or 4,000 artificial flavors and colors, and now a lot of consumers want products that don't have them?
3: It really depends on the the case. Anybody who's gone to a supermarket within the past five years has almost certainly noticed that all kinds of familiar brands now are proclaiming nothing artificial, right? No artificial flavors, even things where it just seems so ridiculous, like natural Cheetos. right?
1: So what are all natural Cheetos? What does that mean?
3: Well, I can't really answer that. Um, In fact, nobody can. Natural flavors are defined, right? If you look on an ingredient list and you see an item that says natural flavors, there's actually—you can go to the Code of Federal Regulations and you can read what that means. It means fruits, leaves, skins, seeds—
1: From natural Yes, exactly.
3: Um, And artificial is everything else. But there's a lot of ingredients that kind of straddle the line— or ways of processing that kind of straddle the line. A major class action court case recently, uh, in the past ten or so years, has been about orange juice, Tropicana orange juice. It's is it hundred percent juice? Well, it is, but it's actually juice that's been recombined with flavor packs, right. right? Of so, basically, it's been everything in it comes from oranges, but it's been processed to a degree that. Some consumers claim that it no longer counts as a natural product.
1: So, so the, the conundrum here mm-hmm. is what is natural, right? Uh-huh. Because as you said, it may all be derived from a plant or from a fruit, but there's a lot of processing going on. So mm-hmm. it may be natural, but it's heavily processed. The second thing is if a Cheeto is natural, it doesn't mean it's good for you. Nope it's still a Cheeto, which probably is not very good for you. So there's a lot of complexity here in terms of if the consumer wants to eat foods that are good for them, just because there's natural is no guarantee that's good for you, right?
3: Right, absolutely. While the definition of natural is still sort of up in the air, it carries so much cultural meaning. We associate it with the kinds of images that you see on the front of packages of foods that call themselves natural, right? Pastoral groves and this kind of harmlessness and this kind of good for youness, right? That you you can you feel safe assuming that something natural is good for you and also good for the planet. And I think that when you look at the way that the the kind of environmental cost, for instance, of relying on an all-natural food chain or things that kind of reasonably fall into what we consider natural, that cost might be much higher than using processing technologies or ingredients that we might consider synthetic. So there's always a kind of balance here.
1: Nadia, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. I, um, I don't know how I feel about artificial, but I know more about it. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. This was really fun.
1: Is Nadia Bernstein. She's currently working on a book based on her dissertation recounting the history of flavor science and the flavor industry. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few of your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, before we open the phone lines, here's my question. You're a French cook or trained French. All the mother sauces you learned, right, in cooking school and in restaurants. Do you use any of those anymore or, or any adaptation of those?
4: Well, I absolutely make Bearnaise all the time. That's a, you know, a takeoff on Hollandaise. That's not a mother sauce, but it's a variation of a mother. And I also make mayonnaise. I like those two very much. I guess that's about it. I make marinara, but that's not the mother sauce. Okay. That's
1: Italian. I think I knew the answer to that, but now it's time to take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Samantha from Sacramento. How are you? Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How can we help you?
5: Okay. Well, I love the taste of sourdough, and a neighbor gave me a sourdough starter that's over 30 years old. It makes good pancakes. It's just not that funky. I'm pretty disappointed. I'm wondering if there's a safe way to make a sourdough starter funkier.
1: The first thing, which you're not going to want to hear, is maybe you shouldn't use that sourdough starter. All sourdough starters are different, right? So they all have different flavors. So you just happen to have one that maybe is not funky enough for you. So you could start all over again. There are a few things we've learned, though, which does make uh, sourdough funkier. Different flours, like whole grains, flours, like whole wheat or rye, will give you more flavor because of the complex carbohydrates in them. If you don't feed your sourdough as often, it makes it a little more acidic and a little funkier. It's like, you know, you have a dog that needs to lose weight. You have to just not feed them as much. And also the liquid that rises to the top of the starter is really sour. So if you really want to make the starter more sour, mix that right back in. The only thing that's typical of bread baking is the slower the ferment, the more flavors developed. So when I make um, pizza dough, for example, it'll sit in the fridge for three days, then I'll take it out and let it warm up for a couple hours. When you take out part of that sourdough, the starter, and you make a new recipe, when you make the new recipe, if you give it three days or two days in the fridge, then take it out and let it finish rising, that long period of slow fermenting, slow fermenting is a way of building flavor. So those are a few things, but ultimately, you could just go buy a starter and you might Like the flavor better. And Sarah's.
4: I'm completely out of my league here. I have to be honest, I've never made sourdough bread and I don't know all the ins and outs.
1: Well, another place, you know, one other suggestion I make is actually uh, some people were down from King Arthur Flower in Vermont. They have hotlines there with people who actually know a lot about bread. Yeah, they're fantastic. So I would also call them. But that's a just trying a different starter would be the first thing I would do just to see if you like it. But the long ferment and using some more complex flours like whole wheat, rye, et cetera, that will add a lot of flavor. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, make sure it's not been sitting there at room temperature for months though. Because rye flour and whole wheat flour do go bad. Go off pretty Rancid, quickly. Ranted. Yeah. yeah. So you want to make sure it's oh, it's good. Oh
5: okay. Okay, that's good. So now So I was wrong in assuming that since the starter is so old that it would be funky, I could get a new one that's funkier, possibly.
1: Well, sourdoughs are like people. You know, they all have a personality. So it just depends on the starter. Yeah, try a new one. All right. Okay. Samantha, thank you. Okay, great to know. Thank you so much. Okay. Our pleasure.
6: Such an honor to talk to you both. Bye. Bye.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: My name is Jill.
1: Hi, Jill. Where are you calling from?
6: I'm calling from Crown Point, Indiana, which is near Chicago. Thanks for taking my call.
1: Pleasure. How can we help you?
6: My question concerns the quality of sugars. You and Sarah talk frequently about the quality of spices and definitely the quality of of flowers, But nobody ever really talks about sugar. And when you go into Hmm. the store, the price of the sugar from the local vendor is usually half the price from what you would call, I don't know, the quality vendor, which in in the Midwest is going to be domino. Is there really a difference?
1: That's an excellent question. I remember when I got started in the 1970s, it was a big controversy about beet sugar versus cane sugar. And so I bought beet sugar and cane sugar and couldn't tell the difference in baking. And then I started using palm sugar and coconut sugar and sort of unrefined sugar. Like at Whole Foods, for example, they don't sell... Domino, they sell something that's less refined. And I use that all the time in baking by weight, um, and I find there's no difference in my baking. So the short answer is, if you're talking about white processed sugar, I don't think you're going to find a difference in your baking. However, for flavor reasons, coconut sugar, other kinds of sugar, palm sugar, those add a lot of flavor, and they're a nice substitute for light and dark brown sugar, for example. But I don't believe, and I know there's some studies that have been done on this, that the brand of white sugar matters in baking, right? I don't think one is more hygroscopic, that is, it attracts liquid more than another. I think it's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah.
4: I think what is pretty true is domino is cane sugar and most of the rest of the stuff is beet. Yeah, I haven't noticed any difference no. myself. I'm pretty sure that most bakers do not care.
6: I'm not the kind of baker who's going to make, you know, the sugar whips on top of things. I just bake bread and I bake cookies and the occasional cake and brownies and things. And, you know, you go out of your way to buy the good stuff. And I just stared at the two kinds of sugar and just wondered, hmm, does this make a difference? So let me ask the question. You intrigue me with this coconut and palm Mm -hmm. sugar. When you say it's got more flavor and it can substitute for light or dark sugar. Does it have fewer calories of sugar? I'm diabetic, so this makes a difference.
1: to me. I can't answer that question. I would doubt it has less. Okay. I use it in my coffee, for example. It just has a lot more flavor. It's very dark brown. It tends to be a little finer. I don't know what the calorie count is.
6: Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for
1: coming. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call any time, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
7: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, my name is Lori.
1: Hi, Lori. How are you?
4: I'm good. How are you?
1: Well, we'll see if we can answer your question. That always...
4: And then we'll feel that good. That cheers me right up. Then we'll be very yeah. good. <laughs> okay.
7: So um, when I was growing up in the early 60s, my grandmother and mother used to take me regularly to a lunch net. I always ordered waffles, and they had a tangy, almost sharp taste, like a bite to them. And I have been trying to reproduce that taste for most of my adult life, and I cannot do it.
4: I mean, the obvious question, but I know you've already gone there, is buttermilk. You've tried buttermilk?
7: I've tried buttermilk. I've tried yeasted waffles. I've mm. tried—someone recommended malt, right? which I tried. But it had almost a bite to it that I cannot recreate.
1: There's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is the world's most difficult waffle recipe, which is sourdough. Ah. Now, sourdough would have that tang. Um, I, I don't think a, a place like that would bother either. making sourdough waffles. I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah, Maybe they made waffles out of the milk that it's soured. Like sour oh. milk was a typical recipe, right, in a lot of baking back in the 19th century. Maybe they just used soured milk. That that's actually could be. Yeah. yeah. But the buttermilk is what I would think would be the I most obvious choice. I would, too. And you, that didn't so do it, it, huh?
7: Well, again, I'm using commercial buttermilk. So Uh, maybe they made their own buttermilk.
1: I don't know. I would think in the early 60s, buttermilk was quite different than it is now. That makes the most sense to me. And the kind of buttermilk they were using was tangier than what we have today. That's possible. That would be my best guess because I think the sourdough thing is just not reasonable.
7: I guess I can look at recipes for making your own buttermilk.
4: What about adding some sour cream?
1: Yeah, well, that's the other possibilities. Well, there you go. That's an excellent buttermilk and sour cream. Yeah. That's the other possibility.
7: Yeah, I think I came across a Betty Crocker recipe with sour cream.
1: Yeah, well, try, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Yeah. Because that would be yeah. tangy. Yeah. And that's an easy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I would do that. It
7: would be delicious, even yeah. if it wasn't the same I the
1: mean, right you, one. you want to spend two hours churning your own butter just to get some buttermilk to try buttermilk <laughs> <laughs> waffles? I mean, that's a little that's a little on extreme. the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, sour cream. I think of all the things we've said, sour cream.
4: Okay. All right, and Lori, know. let us know how it goes. Okay, R- report I totally back, will. please. All right. Okay. Give that
1: okay. A Thank
5: shot. you very okay. much. Okay.
4: Okay. Bye bye.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from Chef Mckinney Howell about vegan cooking and her year on the road with Stevie Wonder. That and more in just a moment.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allegash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Mill State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with McKinney Howell. She was raised in a vegan family that's been in the vegan food business since the 1970s. Her Seattle-based restaurants and shops include Plum Bistro, also Sugar Plum. In 2015, she was Stevie Wonder's chef for his songs and the Key of Life tour. McKinney, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So as a former uh, menswear designer, you obviously think about color. And I love this quote about food. You said, there's a lot of color in food, but you have to look for it. So is part of making this food appear delicious and inviting the color and how you present it?
2: Well, I have a theory on food like music or anything else that you put yourself into doing. I think that mediums like food are a representation of the individual. And if you look for the brightness and the deliciousness of life, you can find that in plants and you can— Then replicate that on the plate. So, you know, there's a potato, or there's a yam, and there's a sweet potato, and there's a purple sweet potato, and there's, I mean, there's so much variety that you just have to look for it and represent it well. And I believe that you should do that in anything you do. I was a designer like that. I think that music is like that. I think that when, you know, when people are truly popular in music, their music represents who they truly are. And I think. When you create food that touches people's soul, it really represents who you truly are and what you feel about it, whether it's bright or exciting or craveable or addictive. or Those are all facets of the individual that is making the thing, I think.
1: So here you are with restaurants and food trucks, and uh, you're in the process of opening uh, a dessert place. Uh, And all of a sudden, Stevie Wonder comes to you and says, hey, join me on tour was that a tough decision or that was a snap decision?
2: By the time he came in, I had already built quite a good foundation for the business. So it wasn't as trepidatious as just trying to open a store and then right. leaving. Although it's still, you know, it, the decision did, ha- I did have to wait and I only had about three days, but I, I do think that the reward was worth it. You know, you you, you just don't know. You have to, you got to try And you got to try knowing that you're willing to risk it messing up. But I I felt like I should try. And I'm so glad that I did.
1: So about 10 years ago, I actually catered a Grateful Dead concert. This obviously after Jerry died. And I have to say the experience, although the band was lovely, uh, was very different than I thought. It's it's not that glamorous being behind the scenes on tour. Uh, Did you (laughs) find the same thing when you were catering for Stevie Wonder?
2: That was not my experience. My experience was amazing. First of all, I was his personal chef. So I was on a very small team. I was on a team with him and four other men. I was on an all-male team. Hmm. I was, the, the next youngest person was like 17 years older than me. So they were a different, they were a different generation. And they, I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder sang at Martin Luther King. He sang on the March on Washington. He sang hmm. the Happy Birthday song. He say so he came from a different generation of people and so back to what i was saying about when you create music how it comes from inside of you every word that he sings on every song that you've ever heard is truly him everything that you hear about his love for humanity and how we should be as humans that's truly him and that's truly how he treats everyone so it was an eye-opening experience in that i got to see america through the eyes of a black American that loves this country, that has fought for this country in so many ways for so many years. And so when you travel with someone like that, that means so much to so many people. It it erases color. It erases gender. And you see. You see what we actually all hope is there. Hmm.
1: Uh, Let's talk about you. Uh, You write or talk about uh, we were Rastafarian, we were vegan, we were homeschooled. So you started out life early, deeply embedded in the vegan philosophy, right? Yes. And is that something that you ever wavered from or that's just been part of your life so long that that's just a central tenet of how you view food and cooking and living?
2: It's been a part of my life so long that it is a central tenet. Um, you know, it's when you're a kid and you're like, when I get grown, I'm going to do what I want to do. My mom can't tell me what to do. But right. then when you get grown, you're like, oh, well, actually, she had a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> so what my parents gave me was this thing, like 20 years ahead of anybody else having it. And right. so now, as I am cooking in the world, I realize people don't really know what to do with plants. But millennials and Gen Z... Those guys refuse to eat anything that has a face, and there's so many of them, and they're so, they're looking for something that's good, and it's right. such a supportive generation, and they'll rally behind you. They just want something, and so many people are so lost as to how to provide it, and so having this thing, it would have been I I, I realized a long time ago, but I see now what an advantage my parents gave me by giving me this this thing, this idea of this plant-based diet and these restaurant concepts and how you can turn this into familiar, cultural American food.
1: What, what do you think about the burger replacements out there? Do you think that's, that's something that's here to stay uh, and is a good idea or not?
2: Um, I don't know how long the meat replacement is going to stay. I do think that it's a good idea because I think that what the meat replacement burger does for people is it gives them... Some familiar substance that helps them to step into veganism a little bit easier.
1: It's an entry point.
2: Yeah, it gives them a way to understand veganism versus going from, can you imagine, I don't know if you're a meat eater or not, but can you imagine like enjoying steaks all the time and then somebody telling you, oh no, you actually have to be raw. For the next however long. You're going to go into shock. (laughs) Your body's going to go into shock. (laughs) You're going to really want that steak. But if you have, you know, a variety of things that can help you get where you're going, it's going to be easier for you to make that transition. And so I think that all of the things that exist inside of the plant-based world are necessary. Yes, I do.
1: Now you said I think that Stevie Wonder had been a vegan for just a couple of years before you started cooking for him. Did you what did you learn about your art cooking for him? Did you did Oh, you... I learned how to cook. I learned how to be a really good cook. I was
2: a chef when I left here uh-huh. and I was a little bit fancy. You know, I thought I knew what I was doing. I learned how to huh. care for someone and you learn how to cook when you are on a tour like that, especially when you're an individual's personal chef. So I had to cook breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. I had to do beverages and teas. After I left that tour, I could teach you how to be vegan for the rest of your life if that's what you wanted. Having all of the good things of life, like, you know, French toast for breakfast or scrambles for breakfast or, you know, I did all different types of tofus and seitans and grains and legumes for dinner. And when you have to cook for somebody every day, you really understand how to create variety and a satisfying meal every day. It's like having, you know, I guess I guess I don't have one yet, but I would assume it's like when you have a family and you cook every day. You know, it's fuel. And so it has to taste good and it has to feel good and it has to hit the spot and it has to. You know, it has to be all of those things.
1: A, a few recipes you mentioned: baconish vinaigrette. What does baconish vinaigrette mean?
2: It's a smoked tofu bacon. Um, so we take a tofu and we smoke it, and we call it a a bacon. And then I make a a, a dressing with uh, vinegar, stone ground mustard, mm. some fresh herbs. So it's like a smoky vinaigrette.
1: You also mentioned hillside quickie sandwiches that your mother created. What are those?
2: Tofu sandwiches. So my mom created the first tofu sandwich in the natural food market here in the Northwest. Um, when we were little, we she homeschooled us and we worked in our family business. And it was, we had to deliver sandwiches. <laughs> we were the earthy, crunchy vegans.
1: So let's assume you're talking to someone who's not a vegan or vegetarian, but is thinking about going in that direction. Do you have a couple things you could say to people about how you would put together a plant-based dinner fairly quickly?
2: Well, you know, I think, I think that we overthink veganism. I think that all of the things that make regular food good also make plant-based food good. So you have to make sure that you have enough salt, fat, acid, heat. Right. <laughs> um, you have to make sure that You know, it's juicy enough. It's saucy enough. And if you know how to cook, stop thinking about it as like, oh, my God, I have to cook vegan food. Mm -hmm. Just start thinking about what are the elements that you could replace. Say, for instance, something as basic as spaghetti and meatballs. If you already make a killer sauce, you know, all you have to do is replace the meatballs with plant meat. Replace the cheese with a plant cheese. And Boom. You got a vegan dish. So don't overthink it and don't try to make it too fancy or something that you wouldn't eat. Like (laughs) I had this um, celery root hash and I was like, that tastes terrible. Do you eat (laughs) celery root in your regular life? So why would you give that to me as a vegan? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) like don't give the vegan something that you would not eat in your real life. Think about the things that are good to you every day and start to think about the replacements. And if you think about it, most people eat a vegan carrot. Most people eat vegan potatoes. <laughs> most people, you know, there are things that...
1: Well. You know what I really love about you is you're a vegan with attitude. I mean, you're going like, would I <laughs> would I eat the celery root normally? No. Oh, Who would? Would you? No. <laughs> it's not. No. That, that, that and turnips are not high on my list of favorite things.
2: No, they're not high on anybody's list. They right. don't taste good. Not to beat down the lowly celery root, <laughs> right. but you gotta you gotta work. Well, with you it. Could,
1: you you puree it with like potatoes, right? And then yeah, add, and then it's add, good. Add some fat, and it's it's a nice dish, right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, you gotta get rid of that bitter taste, but don't just give a person a bowl of celery
1: root hash. I like That's that. That's not good. Good for you. Um, you've made it very clear that the restaurant business can be hell. It's very tough. Yes. Oh um, god. Looking back, you know what what have you learned from this? Is this were all these things necessary trials you just had to get through to become successful at this or maybe you would have taken a different path.
2: So, I think when you have a crazy idea to change the world, you do have to go through adversity. And I and I honestly think that in a few years, hopefully, we'll change our opinion on veganism. It'll, it'll at a point be insane that we ever thought that right. it was not okay to be largely plant-based because right. what are we doing to our planet? Like, we all have to live here together. And so I think that the way that things are occurring to us today about some of our archaic thoughts, it will occur to us shortly about how we think about what we eat.
1: Bikini, um, what a pleasure having you on Milk Street. Uh, maybe someday we'll sit down and have a meal.
2: Thank you. I hope so.
1: That was McKinney Howell, owner and a chef at several Seattle-based restaurants and shops, including Plum Bistro, Plum Chopped, and Sugar Plum. In 2013, she published a cookbook titled Plum, Gratifying Vegan Dishes from Seattle's Plum Bistro. Stevie Wonder liked his comfort foods while touring, which made me wonder what other musicians have stocked in their dressing rooms. So according to Taste of Home magazine... Carrie Underwood has three types of hummus. Justin Bieber goes for bread, deli meats, and Swedish fish. Beyoncé loves baked chicken, well-seasoned with garlic. It's Guinness for Will Ferrell. Mariah Carey goes for wine and Gatorade, hopefully not mixed. And Lady Gaga asks for, quote, non-smelly, non-sweaty cheese, plus roast chicken and guacamole. The last time I was backstage, all I got was a cup of tea and an old power bar. So maybe I need to take singing lessons. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, paprika pork stuffed cabbage. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So this is a story about Zagreb, I guess, because you were just there. Yes. Uh, I was there in 1971. A little be- bit before, before you were born, probably. A bit before my time. I was changing trains, so I think I had some blood sausage in my backpack. You seem to fare better. Uh, You actually had a good meal. So what did you eat? Uh,
10: Yeah, you know, I had to look, though, because in Croatia, you know, meat is not so much a food as a full frontal assault. But with a little digging, I did find sarma, which is the Croatian version of a stuffed cabbage leaf. But it's nothing like any cabbage leaf I've ever had. These were tender and tangy leaves that were not rubbery like I'm used to here. And the filling was meaty and rich and had tons of paprika in it. And it also had the same tanginess that was on the outside in the cabbage leaf itself. It was a completely different experience. Are these
1: pickled cabbage
10: leaves? When well, you they say f-
1: tangy, what does that
10: mean? Yeah, exactly, they're fermented. And oh. actually what they do is they do a year-long fermentation of whole heads of green cabbage. Huh. And then they take those leaves, they peel them off, they stuff them, and they cook them in a very paprika-rich sauce, incredible.
1: So if you go to someone's home there's a big cabbage barrel yes, in the
10: basement. I'll exactly. Old yes,
1: exactly. And so why is the filling also tangy?
10: So what they do is they chop up a little bit of that cabbage and they mix it in with the rice and the ground pork and then they stuff that in and then they use even more of that diced up cabbage in the sauce itself. So since we don't pickle
1: whole heads of cabbage we do not. at Milk Street,
10: no. <laughs> uh, what was our go-to fixer? Actually, it was an easy fix. We take, just like they do, we take the whole head of green cabbage and we simmer it in seasoned water with vinegar. And the vinegar does the mm. same thing. It gives you that kind of tangy flavor, but it also helps break down the leaves so that they're nice and tender when you wrap them.
1: So is this the classic casserole where you stuff the leaves, put them in a baking dish into the oven? Is that the... Pretty
10: much, yeah. I mean, with a whole lot of sweet paprika, we use almost four tablespoons for the whole recipe. And we pre-cook the rice a little bit so that it cooks in the same time as the rest of it. And again, the real distinguishing factor, though, is those cabbage leaves. And you tenderize them, you give them a really tangy flavor, and they are fantastic.
1: Any sauce with this?
10: Yep. it's Again, it's using some of the cabbage, just like we learned in Croatia, with a lot of paprika and some of the water that we use to cook the rice. It's got some nice starchiness to it, so it thickens up as it cooks. So direct from Zagreb,
1: you had a better culinary experience than I did uh, 50 years later. Paprika pork stuffed cabbage. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.
10: You can get this recipe for paprika pork stuffed cabbage at MilkStreetRadio.com.
1: This is Most Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik reveals J.D. Salinger's recipe for popcorn salt and more favorite foods from our literary heroes. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, uh, my name is Kevin Gray.
4: And where are you calling from, Kevin?
5: I'm calling from LaGrange, Kentucky.
4: How can we help you today?
5: Well, I have a question that involves something which would seem rather simple, which is hot water. My question is, my wife, when she is uh, cooking, and she's an excellent cook, But when she has a recipe that needs hot or warm water, especially warm water, what she'll do is use water directly from the tap. And I have a question about that because I've had to drain a hot water heater before, and I see all (laughs) the stuff that tends to form in them, all that crunchy stuff. So I guess my question is because, you know, hot water heaters have have a sacrificial magnesium anode, and they've got all this crunchy stuff in them. Does doing this— Get into the food? Noticeably. Change the taste of the water, yes.
4: Well, not just that. It's just not as healthy. I mean, it sort of depends on your pipes and where you live and what's going on. But uh, hot water dissolves contaminants more quickly than cold water. Oh. So, no, I think you were right in that you, she should not be using the hot water. She should get cold water and then heat it up. Chris?
1: You're right. The hot water heater, if you ever drain one, and I have. is scary. Uh, it's very scary. And so you're better off with cold water. We've also done, I've done tests years ago where we were making bread and using bottled uh-huh. water versus tap water. And we could actually tell the difference uh-huh. okay. in some breads. That being said, if, you know, once a month you use half a cup of warm water from the tap. It's not gonna tap, kill anybody. It's not gonna hurt anybody. But in general, I agree. You wanna use cold water, cold water or use bottle water if it's something where water's gonna be an important part of the recipe Yeah, or filtered water.
5: Yes. I've always wondered about that. And I thought, well, I'll just ask the question of you guys.
1: Actually, I have a question for you. My wife is also a very good cook. And the question is, how do you get your significant other to change something they do in the kitchen? And they actually change without getting mad at you. Do you have a psychological help?
4: He's got an advantage here in that. He can ask us, and what we say matters to his wife. Well, maybe not. Whereas
1: what you say to your wife doesn't matter at all. <laughs> That's absolutely true. So I'm
4: sorry. We have to find a different <laughs> expert for you. I can say,
1: no, I've got it. I can say, Kevin, I call Kevin, and he said, you should use a walk for this recipe, not a skillet. Yeah,
4: okay. And she'll say, who the heck is
1: Kevin? Well, I'll just say Kevin's the expert. The walk expert. Yeah.
4: Okay. Okay, I'll right, use Kevin, your name thanks, and you use thanks mine. thanks for that, yes. Okay. okay.
1: Thanks, Kevin. All right. Uh, thank you all very much. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How do you do? I mean— He doesn't cook. I know, but you're married. So you have— Yeah, all those little fights, yeah. He does things that are annoying. So you obviously have to pick your fights, but do you have a psychological approach that works?
4: It's very, very indirect. Smart. Very smart. So, you know, like one of the things he does is we collect the New York Times, and they pile up and pile up and pile up. And, you know, maybe one day I'll sort of accidentally knock them over when I walk by— and That's he'll notice, you very know, good. so, you know, things like that.
1: But you don't do things like, uh, someone once told me that leaving piles and newspapers around is a fire hazard. No, that would not work. Yeah, You'd so see advanced. right through it. Yeah. Anyway, any rate, moving on. Next call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is
7: Marilyn. I live in Mesa, Arizona.
1: How can we help you?
7: I started making candies and I wanted to use up some leftover melting chocolate. And it had a white ash on it that disappeared when I melted it, but reappeared when it cooled. And my question is, what is it? And is it bad for you?
1: It's cocoa butter crystals, uh, which end up on the surface because the chocolate was stored in too cool or too hot a location. You can just eat it. Arizona, too hot. Too hot, of course. So don't (laughs) put it in the fridge, but keep it in a cool, dry place. You can melt it and use it in a brownie, for example. Or a cake. Oh, okay. But for dipping, for example, that's not gonna work because as the melted chocolate cools, the fat structures change permanently and those crystals are gonna reappear. It's fine for baking a cake. Okay. It's not poisonous. It's not
7: harmful to eat, it's just not pretty.
1: You could actually, I mean, sometimes I have a bar of chocolate and I'm baking and I notice it's got white and then I can just eat it. <laughs> it's good news.
4: Yeah. I don't have to yeah. bake with it. Right. Uh, it's
1: strictly visual. I can live with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can live with that too. So well, the, don't worry about okay. it.
4: The thing is, you know those beautiful bonbons you get in a chocolate store where the yes. chocolate seems to snap when you bite into it? That's been tempered, yes. this whole process. And the thing oh. about chocolate that's you know got the bloom on it is it's not bad for you, but it's going to have that bloom, and also it's not going to have that snap that you want. You could get regular chocolate and temper it yourself before you use it to dip into, as a matter of fact, Jacques Torres, who's a wonderful chocolatier, he has a method for tempering chocolate in a microwave. Really? Yeah, that's really pretty cool. So you might, Ah. since we're talking about chocolate, you might want to just Google it and find it and try it sometime yourself to see, cause since it sounds like maybe you're going to make chocolate candies again, in which case you're going to want it to be yeah. tempered just so it looks nice. But just to boil it down to the simplest, Google tempering chocolate in the microwave with uh, Jacques Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S. And he's so much fun to watch anyway. Okay. I think Sarah has a little thing, little thing for, for
1: Jack Torres. <laughs>
4: Well, he's such a sweetie pie. It's that
1: accent it gets you every time.
4: I know that French accent.
1: Marilyn, uh, thanks for calling. Don't worry about the white bloom. <laughs>
4: thank okay.
7: you. All yeah. right, take
1: care. Okay. okay,
4: thank you. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. This is Most J Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners.
7: Hello, this is Debbie
3: from Littleton, Colorado, and I'm calling to recommend that you keep the ingredient vital sweet gluten on your pantry shelf. You can order this online, but you can easily find it in the grocery store. Bob's Red Mill makes it, and it's usually in the baking needs aisle right next to the gluten-free item. You can change all-purpose flour into bread flour with this ingredient by just adding two or three teaspoons to a cup of all-purpose flour. It also is very helpful in whole grain baking, helping those types of breads to rise better. So it's a great ingredient, and I recommend you keep it on hand. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, let's find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam Gopnik, uh, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm always alert for uh, a new way of looking at the world after I speak with you.
9: Well, let me try and take you down a previously untrodden path. (laughs) This all began for me when I discovered J.D. Salinger's favorite recipe for popcorn salt. Now, you know J.D. Salinger, of course. We all know J.D. Salinger, the author of... Catcher in the Rye and The Glass Family Stories and countless other classics, who famously locked himself away almost as a hermit in New Hampshire for the last 40 years of his life, forbidding any uh, fans and, in fact, stopping publishing entirely because he was so fed up with the world. But his son, Matthew, organized a little show of Salinger artifacts at the New York Public Library, and I, a huge Salinger fan, wandered in, to see what was there. And of the many things that were there, letters to S.J. Perlman, the original draft of Catcher in the Rye, the thing that caught my eye, given my preoccupations, was his recipe for popcorn salt. And it (laughs) was pinned up there, typed out. And so, being the man I am, I came home and decided that the next time we had popcorn with a movie, we would try J.D. Salinger's popcorn salt. Would you like to know Christopher, what is in J.D. Salinger's popcorn salt? Anything fermented in it, or is it free of that? No, what was so beautiful about it is it was so kind of pure and homey and available. It has garlic salt, it has a little bit of curry powder, it has marjoram, it has dill, oh, and a little paprika. Paprika, curry, dill, uh, marjoram, and garlic powder. Um, so I pulled all these things together, being such a Salinger fan, and I sprinkled it on our popcorn, and we sat down to watch a football game. And do you know what? J.D. Salinger's popcorn salt has the same wonderful qualities as J.D. Salinger's pros. It's surprising, it's scintillating, it has an undercurrent of wit, and it's profoundly pleasing. I've never had better popcorn salt. Really? This made me think about the whole wider area of what we might call taste by association, uh, meaning food and drink we enjoy in large part because it reminds us of something we've read and admired somewhere along the way. I'm sure you've had experiences like that or favorite recipes that are strongly associated with particular reading.
1: Yeah, oysters with Dickens, of course, right? Pickwick Papers, Mm -hmm. yeah, that
9: would be one right there. One of my favorites, I realized as I scoured these things, is James Bond's Breakfast. Do you remember James Bond's Breakfast? Yes, I do. soft-boiled egg,
1: Scottish marmalade, and black coffee.
9: Exactly right. I'm so impressed, Chris. Chemex Coffee, which back in the 1950s was very prestigious. And I remember as a kid, a 10- or 11-year-old, reading those novels for the first time. That was by far the most vivid image that the novels gave. I was too young to really care about the Bond girls, but I remember James Bond's Breakfast. I was thinking about some other ones that have affected my life. Now, Proust's Madeline is probably the most famous single thing eaten in the history of literature. But more memorable still are the meals that his characters, the Swan and Odette, eat at the restaurant La Perouse, which is still in business in Paris. And Hmm. I have gone back to La Perouse exactly in order just to try and be a page out of Proust for a night. Another one that appeals to me is, I don't know if you recall this at all, the seed cakes that the hobbits eat throughout The Lord of the Rings. There's lots of feasting in Lord of the Rings, but the only thing that really resonated for me was this idea of these appealing little seed cakes that you would sort of eat for elevenses on your way someplace else. And I never actually got a seed cake until I was spending a day reporting at that wonderful restaurant, St. John, in London, run by Fergus Mm -hmm. Henderson, and he stopped at eleven to have seed cakes. Mm. And they were every bit as good as I thought they might possibly be. And what struck me that all of these things have in common, the things that we actually remember in literature, tend not to be the ones that are the most uh, obviously celebrated, not the ones that are punctuated to be great, like Babette's feast, for instance, in Isaac Denison. No, the ones um, that we really remember are all popcorn salt. They're all things that we eat in passing, not things that we focus on. The whole image of this gifted, hermetic, super gifted, super hermetic writer, sitting down to watch Hitchcock movies, because that's what he loved best of all, and simply composing this popcorn salt for his family reassured me of the deep underlying humanity of J.D. Salinger's imagination.
1: You, you're really saying it's almost the throwaway foods in these novels that tell you more about the character than, let's say, Babette's Feast, where it's at the center. I remember my favorite food in Ian Fleming and Bond was he orders for dessert an alligator pear. Yes. And it said so much about Bond, he would not eat sweets, right? But he had alligator pear for dessert. And that little detail told you more about Bond than the shaken, not stirred.
9: Chris, it's so astonishing that you mentioned that, because one of my other favorite moments in Bond was when he orders at one point for dessert, exactly because, as you say, he doesn't eat normal sweets. He orders pineapple, sliced pineapple. And I thought that was the epitome of elegance, right? right? Alligator pear or pineapple for dessert. It's exactly those kinds of sideways, throwaway things that live most brightly, I think, in our imaginations.
1: And we should just leave with my favorite comment from the Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. He orders a martini and the bartender says, shaken or stirred, And he says, do I look like I care? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That
9: was a great update. They were trying to relaunch the Bond character as a rougher, cruder, more relatable, to use that horrible word, character. And that's the way they came up, renouncing his previous drink. I'll still have Bond's breakfast before I'll have Bond's martini. Uh,
1: I totally agree. Adam Gopnik, thank you so much. Pleasure to talk. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, as always, for listening.
3: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sidney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Bob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.